Chapter 41 of Lives of the Most Remarkable Criminals, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lauren Randall. Lives of the Most Remarkable Criminals, Volume 3, by Arthur L. Hayward. The History of the Life and Surprising Adventures of John Gow, alias Smith, a most notorious pirate and murderer, part two. Also, he told them, if any of the men of war came out in search of them, they would never imagine they were gone away to the northward, so that their run that way was perfectly secure, and he could assure them of his own knowledge, that if they landed in such places as he should direct, they could not fail of considerable booty in plundering some gentlemen's houses, who lived secured and unguarded very near the shore, and that though the country should be alarmed, yet before the government could send any men of war to attack them, they might clean their ship, lay in a store of fresh provisions, and be gone. Beside that, they would get a good many stout fellows to go along with them, upon his encouragement, so that they should be better manned than they were yet, and should be ready against all events." These arguments and their approaching fate concurring had a sufficient influence on the ship's company to prevail on them to consent. So they made the best of their way to the northward, and about the middle of January they arrived at Carristown, the island of Carrick, in the Isles of Orkney, and came to an anchor in a place which Gow told them was safe, riding under the lee of a small island at some distance from the port. But now their misfortunes began to come on, and things looked but with an indifferent aspect upon them, for several of their men, especially such of them as had been forced or decoyed into their service, began to think of making their escape from them, and to cast about for means to bring it to pass. The first to take an opportunity to go away was a young man, who was originally one of the ship's company, but was forced by fear of being murdered, as has been observed, to give a silent assent to go with them, it was one evening when the boat went on shore, for they kept a civil correspondence with the people of the town, that this young fellow, being one of the ship's crew, and having been several times on shore before, and therefore not suspected, gave them the slip, and got away to a farmhouse which lay under a hill out of sight. There, for two or three pieces of eight, he got a horse, and soon by that means escaped to Kirkwall, a market town and chief of the Orkneys about twelve miles from the place where the ship lay. As soon as he came there, he surrendered himself to the government, desiring protection, and informed them who Gal was, and what the ship's crew were, and upon what business they were abroad, with what else he knew of their designs as to plundering the gentlemen's houses, etc. Upon this they immediately raised the country, and got a strength together to defend themselves. But the next disaster that attended the pirates— for misfortunes seldom come alone, was more fatal than this, for ten of Gow's men, most of them likewise forced into their service, went away with a longboat, making the best of their way for the mainland of Scotland. These men, however they did it, or what shift soever they made to get so far, were taken in the Firth of Edinburgh, and made prisoners there. 
hardened for his own destruction and justice evidently pursuing him, Gao grew the bolder for the disaster, and notwithstanding that the country was alarmed, and that he was fully discovered, instead of making a timely escape, he resolved to land, and so put his intended project of plundering the gentlemen's houses into execution, whatever it cost him. In order to this, he sent the boatswain and ten men on shore the very same night, very well armed, directing them to go to the house of Mr. Honeyman of Grahamsey, sheriff of the county, and who was himself at that time, to his great good fortune, from home. The people of the house had not the least notice of their coming, so that when they knocked at the door, it was immediately opened, upon which they all entered the house at once, except one panton, whom they set sentinel, and ordered him to stand at the door to secure their retreat, and to hinder any from coming in after them. Mrs. Honeyman and her daughter were extremely frightened at the sight of so many armed men coming into the house, and ran screaming about like people distracted, while the pirates, not regarding them, were looking about for chests and trunks, where they might expect to find some plunder. And Mrs. Honeyman, in her fright coming to the door, asked Panton, the man who stood sentinel there, what the meaning of it all was. He told her freely they were pirates, and that they came to plunder her house. At this she recovered some courage, and ran back into the house immediately, and knowing where her money lay, which was very considerable, and all in gold, she put the bag in her lap, and boldly rushing by Panton, who thought she was only running from them in a fright, carried it all off, and so made her escape with the treasure. The boatswain, being informed that the money was carried off, resolved to revenge himself by burning the writings and papers, which they call there the charters of their estates, and are always of great value in gentlemen's houses of estates. But the young lady, Mr. Honeyman's daughter, hearing them threaten to burn the writings, watched her opportunity, and running to the charter room where they lay, tied the most considerable of them up in a napkin, and threw them out of the window, jumped out after them herself, and escaped without damage, though the window was one story high at least. However, the pirates had the plundering of all the rest of the house besides, and carried off a great deal of plate and things of value, and forced one of the servants, who played very well on the bagpipes, to march along, piping before them, when they carried it off to the ship. The next day they weighed anchor, intending, though they had cleaned but one side of the ship, to put out to sea and quit the coast. But sailing eastward, they came to anchor again at a little island called Calf Sound. And having some further mischief in their view, here the boatswain went on shore again with some armed men. But meeting with no other plunder, they carried off three women, whom they kept on board some time, and used so inhumanely, that when they set them on shore again, they were not able to go or stand. And it is said one of them died on the beach where they left them. The next day they weighed again, holding the same course eastward, through the openings between the islands, till they came off Ross Ness, and now Gow resolved to make the best of his way for the island of a day, to plunder the house of Mr. Fay, a gentleman of a considerable estate, and with whom Gow had some acquaintance, having been at school together when they were youths. On the 13th of February, in the morning, Gow appearing with his ship off Calf Sound, Mr. Fay and his family were very much alarmed, not being able to get together above six or seven men for his defense. 
he therefore wrote a letter to gow intending to send it on board as soon as he should get into the harbor to desire him to forbear the usual salutes with his great guns because mrs fay his wife was so very much indisposed and this as he would oblige his old schoolfellow telling him at the same time that the inhabitants were all fled to the mountains on the report of his being a pirate which he hoped would not prove true in which case he should be very ready to supply him with all such necessities as the island would afford desiring him to send the messengers safe back at whose return the alarms of the people would immediately be at an end the tide it seems runs extremely rapid among those islands and the navigation is thereby rendered very dangerous and uncertain. Gow was an able seaman, but was no pilot for that place, and which was worse, he had no boat to assist in case of extremity, to wear the ship, and in turning into Calf Sound, he stood a little too near the point of a little island called the Calf, and which lay in the middle of the passage. Here his ship, missing stays, was in great danger of going on shore, to avoid which, he dropped an anchor under his foot, which, taking good hold, brought him up, and he thought the danger was over. Gow was yet in distress, and had no remedy but to send his small boat on shore to Mr. Fay, to desire his assistance, that is to say, to desire him to lend him a boat to carry out an anchor and heave off the ship. Mr. Fay sent back the boat, and one James Lang in it, with a letter already mentioned, Gow sent him back immediately with an answer, by word of mouth, viz., that he would write to nobody. But if Mr. Fay would order his people to assist him with a boat to carry out an anchor, he would reward them handsomely. In the meantime, Mr. Fay ordered his great boat, for he had such a one as Gow wanted, to be staved and launched into the water and sunk, and the masts, sails, and oars to be carried out of sight. While this was doing, Mr. Fay perceived Gow's boat coming on shore with five persons in her. These men, having landed on the main island, left their boat on the beach, and altogether marched directly up to the mansion house. This put him into some surprise at first. However, he resolved to meet them in a peaceable manner, though he perceived they were all double-armed. When he came up to them, he entreated them not to go up to the house, because of the languishing condition of his wife who was already frightened with the rumors which had been raised of their being pirates, and that she would certainly die with the fear she was in for herself and family if they came to the door. The boatswain answered they did not desire to fright his wife or anybody else, but they came to desire the assistance of his boat, and if he would not grant them so small a favor, he had nothing to expect from them but the utmost extremity. Mr. Fay returned that they knew well enough he could not venture to give them or lend them his boat or any help, as they appeared to be such people as were reported, but that if they would take them by force, he could not help himself. But in the meantime, talking still in a friendly manner to them, he asked them to go to a neighboring house, which he said was a change house, that is a public house, and take a cup of ale with him. This they consented to, seeing Mr. Fay was alone, so they went all with him, in the meantime, Mr. Fay found means to give secret orders that the oars, masts, and sails of the pirate's boat should be all carried away, and that a quarter of an hour after they had sat together, he should be called hastily out of the room on some pretense or other of somebody to speak with him, all which was performed to a tittle. 
when he was got from them he gave orders that his six men who before he had got together and who were now come to him well armed should place themselves at a certain stile behind a thick hedge and which was about halfway between the alehouse and his own house saying that if he came that way with the boatswain alone they should suddenly start out upon them both and throwing him down should seize upon the other but that if all the five came with him he would take an occasion to be either before or behind them so that they might all fire upon them without danger of hurting him having given these orders and depending upon their being well executed he returned to the company and having given them more ale told them he would gladly do them any service that he could lawfully do and that if they would take the trouble of walking up to his house in a peaceable manner so that his family might not be frighted with seeing him among them they should have all the assistance that was in his power the fellows whether they had taken too much ale or whether the condition of their ship and the hopes of getting a boat to help them blinded their eyes is not certain fell with ease into this snare and agreed readily to go along with mr fay but after a while resolved not to go all of them only deputed the boatswain to go which was what mr fay most desired the boatswain was very willing to accept of the trust but it was observed he took a great deal of care of his arms which were no less than four pistols all loaded with a brace of bullets each nor would he be persuaded to leave any of them behind him no not with his own men in this posture mr fay and the boatswain walked along together very quietly until they came to the stile having got over which mr fay seeing his men all ready turned short about upon the boatswain and taking him by the collar told him he was his prisoner and the same moment the rest of his men rushing in upon them threw both down and so secured the boatswain without giving him time so much as to fire one pistol he cried out indeed with all his might to alarm his men but they soon stopped his mouth by first forcing a pistol into it and then a handkerchief and having disarmed him bound his hands behind him and his feet together then mr fay left him there under a guard and with his other five men but without arms at least such that could be seen returned to the alehouse to the rest the house having two doors they divided themselves and rushing in at both doors at the same time they seized the four men before they were aware or had time to lay hold of their arms they did indeed what men could do and one of them snapped a pistol at mr fay but it did not go off and mr fay at the same time snatching at the pistol to divert the shot if it had fired struck his hand with such force against the cock as very much bruised it they were all five now in his power and he sent them away under a good guard to a village in the middle of the island where they were kept separate from one another and sufficiently secured mr fay then dispatched expresses to the gentlemen in the neighboring island to acquaint them with what he had done and to desire their speedy assistance also desiring earnestly that they would take care that no boat should go within reach of the pirates guns and at night mr fay caused fires to be made upon the hills round him to alarm the country and ordered all the boats round the island to be hauled up upon the beach as far as it was possible and disabled also lest the pirates should swim from the ship and get any of them into their possession 
Next day, the fourth, it blew very hard all day, and in the evening about high water it shifted to west-northwest, upon which the pirates set their sails, expecting to get off, and so to lay it round the island and put out to sea. But the fellow who was ordered to cut the cable, missing several strokes, the cable checked the ship's way, and consequently on a sudden she took all aback. Then the cable being parted when it should have been held, the ship ran directly on shore on the Calf Island, nor could all their speed prevent it. With an air of desperation, Gow told them they were all dead men, nor could it indeed be otherwise, for having lost the only boat they had, and five of their best hands, they were able to do little or nothing towards getting their ship off. Besides, as she went on shore at the top of high water and a spring tide, there was no hope of getting her off afterward. Wherefore, the next morning, being Monday the 15th, they hung out a white flag as a signal for a parley, and sent a man on shore upon Calf Island, for now they could go on shore out of the ship at half flood. Now Mr. Fay thought he might talk with Gow in a different style from what he did before. So he wrote a letter to him, wherein he complained of the rude behavior of his five men, for which he told him he had been obliged to seize on them and make them prisoners, letting him know that the country being all alarmed would soon be too many for him, and therefore advised him to surrender himself peaceably, and be the author of a quiet surrender of the rest, as the only means to obtain any favor and then he might become an evidence against the rest, and so might save his own life. This letter Mr. Fay sent by a boat with four armed men to the island, to be given to the fellow that Gow had sent on shore, and who waited there. At the same time he gave them a letter from Gow to Mr. Fay, for now he was humbled enough to write, which before he refused. Gow's letter to Mr. Fay was to let him have some men and boats, to take out the best of the cargo, in order to lighten the ship, and set her afloat, offering himself to come on shore and be hostage for the security of men and boats, and to give Mr. Fay a thousand pounds in goods for the service. He declared at the same time that if this small sucker was refused him, he would take care nobody should better himself by his misfortunes, for rather than they would suffer themselves to be taken, they would set fire to the ship, and would all perish together. Mr. Fay replied to this letter, that he had a boat indeed, that would have been fit for his service, but that she was staved and sunk. But if he would come on shore quietly without arms, and bring his carpenter with him to repair the boat, he might have her. Mr. Fay did this to give Gow an opportunity to embrace his first offer of surrendering. But Gow was neither humble enough to come in, nor sincere enough to treat with him fairly, if he had intended to let him have the boat. And if he had, it is probable that the former letter had made the men suspicious of him, so that now he could do nothing without communicating it to the rest of the crew. About four in the afternoon, Mr. Fay received an answer to his last letter, the copy of which is exactly as follows. From on board our ship, the Revenge, February 16th, 1725. Honored sir, I am sorry to hear of the irregular proceedings of my men. I gave no orders to that effect, and what hath been wrongfully done to the country was contrary to my inclinations. It is my misfortune to be in this condition at present. It was in your power to have done otherwise in making my fortune better. 
Since my being in the country, I have wronged no man, nor taken anything but what I have paid for. My design in coming was to make the country better, which I am still capable to do, providing you are just to me. I thank you for the concern you have for my bad fortune, and am sorry I cannot embrace your proposal as to being evidence. My people have already made use of that advantage. I have by my last signified my design of proceeding, provided I can procure no better terms. Please to send James Lang on board to continue till my return. I should be glad to have the good fortune to commune with you upon that subject. I beg that you would assist me with the boat, and be assured I do no man harm were it in my power, as I am now at your mercy. I cannot surrender myself prisoner. I'd rather commit myself to the mercy of the seas, so that if you will incline to contribute to my escape, I shall leave my ship and cargo at your disposal. I continue. Honored sir, etc. John Smith. Upon this letter, and especially that part wherein Gow desired to commune with him, Mr. Fay, believing he might do some service in persuading him to submit, went over to Calf Island, and went on shore alone, ordering his boat to lie in readiness to take him in again, but not one man to stir out of her, and calling to Gow with a speaking trumpet, desired him to come on shore. This the other readily did, but Mr. Fay, before he ventured, wisely foresaw that whilst he was alone upon the island, the pirates might, unknown from him, get the ship by different ways, and under cover of shore might get behind and surround him. To prevent which, he set a man upon the top of his own house, which was on the opposite shore, and overlooked the whole island, and ordered him to make signals with his flag, waving his flag once for every man that he saw come on shore. But if four or more came on shore, then to keep the flag waving continually, till he, Mr. Fay, should retire. This precaution was very needful, for no sooner was Mr. Fay advanced upon the island, expecting Gow to come on shore to meet him, but he saw a fellow come from the ship, with a white flag, a bottle, a glass, and a bundle. Then turning to his own house, he saw his man make the signals appointed, and that the man kept the flag continually waving, upon which he immediately retired to his boat, and he was no sooner got into it, but he saw five fellows running under shore, with lighted matches and grenadoes in their hands, to have intercepted him, but seeing him out of their reach, they retired to the ship. After this the fellow with a white flag came up and gave Mr. Fay two letters, he would have left the bundle, which he said was a present to Mr. Fay, and the bottle, which he said was a bottle of brandy. But Mr. Fay would not take them, but told the fellow his captain was a treacherous villain, and he did not doubt that he should see him hanged. And as to him, the fellow, he had a great mind to shoot him, upon which the fellow took to his heels, and Mr. Fay, being in his boat, did not think it worth while to land again to pursue him. This put an end to all parley for the present, but had the pirates succeeded in this attempt, they would have so far gained their point, either that they must have been assisted, or Mr. Fay must have been sacrificed. The two letters from Gow were one for Mr. Fay, and the other for his wife. The first was much to the same purpose as the former, only that in this Gow requested the great boat with her masts, sails, and oars, with some provisions to transport themselves whither they thought fit to go for their own safety, offering to leave the ship and cargo to Mr. Fay, and threatening that if the men of war arrived, 
for mr fay had given him notice that he expected two men of war before he was thus assisted they would set fire to the ship and blow themselves up so that as they had lived so they would die together the letter to mrs fay was to desire her to intercede with her husband and plead that he was their countryman and had been her husband's schoolfellow etc but no answer was returned to either of these letters on the seventeenth in the morning contrary to expectation gow himself came on shore upon the calf island according to johnson's history of the pirates chapter eighteen gow's real motive for returning to the orkneys was to wed a girl whose parents had repulsed him on account of his poverty she was the daughter of one mr g a well-to-do man unarmed except for his sword and alone only one man at a distance carrying a white flag making signals for a parley mr fay who by this time had gotten more people about him immediately sent one mr fay of whitehall a gentleman of his own family with five other persons well armed over the island with orders to secure gow if it were possible by any means either dead or alive when they came on shore gow proposed that one of them whose name was shottery a master of a vessel should go on board the ship as hostage for this gow's safety and shottery consenting gow himself conducted him to the ship's side mr fay perceiving this from his own house immediately took another boat and went over to the island himself and while he was expostulating with his men for letting shottery go for hostage gow returned and mr fay made no hesitation but told him that he was his prisoner at this gow started and said that it ought not to be so since there was a hostage delivered for him mr fay said he gave no order for it and it was what they could not justify and since shottery had ventured without orders he must take his fate he would run the venture of it but he advised gow as he expected good usage himself that he would send the fellow who carried his white flag back to the ship with orders for them to return shottery in safety and to desire winter and peterson to come with him gow declined giving any such orders but the fellow said he would readily go and fetch them and did so and they came along with him when gow saw them he reproached them for being so easily imposed on and ordered them to go back to the ship immediately but mr fay's men who were too strong for them surrounded them and took them all when this was done they demanded gow to deliver his sword but he said he would rather die with it in his hand and begged them to shoot him but was denied and mr fay's men disarming him of his sword carried him with the other two into their boat and after that to the main island where mr fay lived having thus secured the captain mr fay prevailed with him to go to the shore over against the ship and to call the gunner and another man to come on shore on calf island which they did but they were no sooner there but they also were surrounded by some men which mr fay had placed out of sight upon the island for that purpose then they made gow call to the carpenter to come on shore still making them believe they would have a boat and mr fay went over and met him alone and talking with him told him they could not repair the boat without help and without tools so persuading him to go back and bring a hand or two with him and some tools some oakum nails etc the carpenter being thus deluded went back and brought a frenchman and another with him with all things proper for their work all of whom as soon as they came on shore were likewise seized and secured by mr fay and his men 
but there were still a great many men in the ship whom it was necessary to bring if possible to a quiet surrender so mr fay ordered his men to make a feint as if they would go to work upon the great boat which lay on the shore upon the island but inside of the ship there they hammered and knocked and made a noise as if they were really caulking and repairing her in order to her being launched off and put into their possession but towards night he obliged gal to write to the men that mr fay would not deliver the boat until he was in possession of the ship and therefore he ordered them all to come on shore without arms and in a peaceable manner this occasioned many debates in the ship but as they had no officers to guide them and were all in confusion they knew not what to do so after some time bewailing their hard fate and dividing what money was left in the ship among them they yielded and went on shore and were all made prisoners to the number of eight and twenty including those who were secured before being now all secured and in custody in the most proper places in the island mr fay took care to give notice to the proper officers in the country and by them to the government of edinburgh in order to get help for the carrying them to england the distance being so great it took up some time for the government at edinburgh not being immediately concerned in it but rather the court of admiralty of great britain expresses were dispatched from thence to london that his majesty's pleasure might be known in return to which orders were dispatched into scotland to have them immediately sent up into england with as much expedition as the case would admit accordingly they were brought up by land to edinburgh first and from thence being put on board the greyhound frigate they were brought by sea to england this necessarily took up a great deal of time so that they had been wise enough to improve the hours that were left they had almost half a year's time to prepare themselves for death though they cruelly denied the poor mate of a few moments to commend his soul to god's mercy even after he was half murdered before they were most of them in custody the latter end of january and were not executed till the eleventh of june the greyhound arrived in the river the twenty fifth of march and the next day came to an anchor at woolwich and the pirates being put into boats appointed to receive them with a strong guard to attend them were brought on shore on the thirtieth and conveyed to the marshalsea prison in southwark where they were delivered to the keepers of the said prison and were laid in irons there they had the mortification to meet lieutenant williams who was brought home by the argyle man-of-war from lisbon and had been committed to the same prison but a very few days before indeed as it was a mortification to them so it was more to him for though he might be secretly pleased that those who had so cruelly as he called it put him into the hands of justice by sending him to lisbon were brought into the same circumstances with himself yet on the other hand it could not but be a terrible mortification to him that here were now sufficient witnesses found to prove his crimes against him which were not so easy to be had before being thus laid fast it remained to proceed against them in due form and this took up some long time still on friday the second of april they were all carried to doctors commons where the proper judges being present they were examined 
by which examination the measures were taken for the farther proceedings. For as they were not equally guilty, so it was needful to determine who it was proper to bring to an immediate trial, and who, being less guilty, were more proper objects of the government's clemency, as being under force and fear, and consequently necessitated to act as they did, and also who it might be proper to single out as an evidence against the rest. After being thus examined, they were remanded to the Marshal Sea. On Saturday the 8th of May, the five who were appointed for evidence against the rest, and whose names are particularly set down in its place, were sent from the Marshalsea prison to Newgate, in order to give their information. Being thus brought up to London, and committed to the Marshalsea prison, and the government being fully informed what black uncommon offenders they were, it was thought proper to bring them to speedy justice. In order to this, some of them, as has been said, who were less criminal than the rest, and who apparently had been forced into their service, were sorted out, and being examined, given first an account of themselves, and then of the whole fraternity. It was thought fit to make use of their evidence for the more clear detecting and convincing of the rest. These were George Dobson, John Finneys, Timothy Murphy, and William Booth. They were the principal evidences, and were indeed more than sufficient, for they so exactly agreed in their evidence, and the prisoners, pirates, said so little in their defense, that there was no room for the jury to question their guilt, or to doubt the truth of any part of the account given in. Robert Reed was a young man mentioned before, who escaped from the boat in the Orkneys, where he surrendered himself after getting a horse at a farmer's house, and conveying himself to Kirkwall, the chief town of the said Orkneys. Nevertheless, he was brought up as a prisoner with the rest, nor was he made use of as an evidence, but was tried upon most, if not all, the indictments with the rest. But Dobson, one of the witnesses, did him the justice to testify that he was forced into their service, as others were. For fear of having their throats cut, as many had been served before their faces, and that in particular he was not present at, or concerned in any of the murders for which the rest were indicted, upon which evidence he was acquitted by the jury. Also he brought one Archibald Souter, the man of the house said before to be a farmhouse, as to whether the said Reed made his escape in the Orkneys, who testified that he did so escape to him, and that he begged him to procure him a horse to ride off to Kirkwall, which he did, and there he surrendered himself. Also he testified that Reed gave him, Souter, a full account of the ship and the pirates that were in her, and what they were, and that he, Souter, revealed it all to the collector of the customs, by which means the country was alarmed, and he added that it was by this man's means that all the prisoners were apprehended, though that was going too far, for tis plain that it was by the vigilance and courage of Mr. Fay chiefly, that they were reduced to such distresses as obliged them to surrender. However, it was true that Reed's escape did alarm the country, and that he merited very well of the public for the timely discovery he made. So he came off clear, as indeed it was but just. For he was not only forced to serve them, but as Dobson testified for him, he had often expressed his uneasiness at being obliged to act with them, and that he wished he could get away, and he was sincere in those wishes, as appeared by his taking the first opportunity he could get to put it in practice. This Dobson was one of the ten men who ran away with the pirate's longboat from the Orkneys, 
and who were afterwards made prisoners in the Firth of Leith, and carried up to Edinburgh. Gow was now a prisoner among the rest in the Marshall Sea. His behavior there was sullen and reserved, rather than penitent. It had been hinted to him by Mr. Fay, as by others, that by his behavior he should endeavor to make himself an evidence against others, and to merit his life by a ready submission, and obliging others to do the like. But Gow was no fool, and he easily saw there were too many gone before who had provided for their own safety at his expense. And besides that, he knew himself too deeply guilty of cruelty and murder to be accepted by public justice as an evidence, especially where so many other less criminals were to be had. This made him, with good reason, too, give over any thoughts of escaping by such means as that, and perhaps, seeing so plainly that there was no room for it, might be the reason why he seemed to reject the offer. Otherwise he was not a person of such nice honor, as that we should suppose he would not have secured his own life at the expense of his comrades. Gow appeared to have given over all thoughts of life, from the first time he came to England. Not that he showed any tokens of his repentance, or any sense of his condition suitable to that which was before him, but continuing sullen and reserved, even to the very time he was brought to the bar, when he came there, he could not be tried with the rest, for the arraignment being made in the usual form, he refused to plead. The court used all the arguments which humanity dictates in such cases. One of these humane arguments, according to Johnson, opposite, consisted in tying his thumbs together with whipcord, which was done several times by the executioner and another officer, they drawing the cord until it broke. To prevail on him to come into ordinary course of other people in like government, laying before him the sentence of the law in such cases, namely that he must be pressed to death, the only torturing execution which, however, they were obliged to inflict. But he continued inflexible, carried on his obstinacy to such a height as to receive the sentence in form, as usual in such cases. The execution being appointed to be done the next morning, he was carried back to Newgate in order to it. But whether he was prevailed with by argument and the reasons of those about him, or whether the apparatus for the execution and the manner of the death he was to die terrified him, we cannot say. But the next morning he yielded, and petitioned to be allowed to plead, and he admitted to be tried in the ordinary way, which being granted, he was brought to the bar by himself and pleaded, being arraigned again upon the same indictment upon which he had been sentenced as a mute, and was found guilty. Williams, the lieutenant, who was put on board the Bristol ship, as hath been said, with orders to deliver him on board the first English man of war they should meet with, comes, of course, to have the rest of his history made up in this place. The captain of the Bristol ship, though he received his orders from the crew of pirates and rogues, whose instructions he was not obliged to follow, and whose accusation of Williams they were not obliged to give credit to, yet punctually obeyed the order, and put him on board the Argyle. Captain Bowler then lying in the port of Lisbon and bound for England, who, as they took him in irons, kept him so, and brought him to England, in the same conditions. But as the pirates did not send any of their company, nor indeed could they do it, along with him to be evidence against him, and the men who went out of the pirate ship on board the Bristol ship, being till then kept as prisoners on board the pirate ship, and perhaps could not have said enough, or given particular evidence sufficient to convict him in a course of justice. 
Providence supplied the want by bringing the whole crew to the same place, for Williams was in the Marshall Sea prison before them, and by that means they furnished sufficient evidence against Williams also, so that they were all tried together. In Williams' case, the evidence was as particular as in Gow's, and Dobson and the others swore positively that Williams boasted that after Macaulay had cut the supercargo's throat imperfectly, he, Williams, murdered him, and added that he would not give him time to say his prayers, but shot him through the head. Finney's and Timothy Murphy testified the same, and to show the bloody disposition of this wretch, William Booth testified that Williams proposed afterwards to the company that if they took any more ships, they should not encumber themselves with the men, having already so many prisoners that in case of a fight they should not be safe with them, but that they should take them and tie them back to back and throw them all overboard into the sea. It should not be omitted here also in the case of Gow himself, as I have observed in the introduction, that Gow had long meditated the kind of villainy which he now put in practice, and that it was his resolution to turn pirate the first opportunity he should get, whatever voyage he undertook, and that I observed he had intended it on board a ship in which he came home from Lisbon, and failed only for want of a sufficient party. So this resolution of his is confirmed by the testimony and confession of James Belvin, one of his fellow criminals, who upon trial declared that he knew that Gow and the crew of the George Galley had a design to turn pirates from the beginning, and added that he discovered it to George Dobson in Amsterdam before the ship went out to sea. For the confirmation of this, George Dobson was called up again, after he had given his evidence upon the trials, and being confronted by Belvin, he did acknowledge that Belvin had said so, and that in particular he had said that the boatswain had a design to murder the master and some others and run away with the ship. Being asked why he did not immediately reveal it to the master, Captain Farinot, he answered that he heard Belvin tell the mate of it, and that the mate told the captain, but the captain made light of it. But the boatswain, finding himself discovered, refused to go, upon which Gow was made second mate, and Belvin was made boatswain and he had been as honest afterwards as before, whereas, on the contrary, he was as forward and active as any of them, except that he was not in the first secret, nor in the murders. He might have escaped what afterwards became so justly his due. But as they acted together, justice required that they should suffer together, and accordingly Gow and Williams, Belvin, Melvin, Winter, Peterson, Rowlandson, and Macaulay received the reward of their cruelty and blood at the gallows, being all executed together on the 11th of June. It happened that Gow, being a very strong man, and giving a kind of spring, it so strained the rope that on some people pulling him by the legs it broke and he fell down. After he had remained about four minutes suspended, his fall stunned him a little, but as soon as he was taken up, he recovered himself so far as to be able to ascend the ladder a second time, which he did with very little concern, dying with the same brutal ferocity which animated all his actions while alive. His body hangs in chains over against Greenwich, as that of Williams does over against Blackwall. End of the History of the Life and Surprising Adventures of John Gow, alias Smith, a most notorious pirate and murderer. Recording by Lauren Randall